Well, we have a special blessing for you today. It's great to have Margaret Stringer with us, veteran missionary. And I'm going to have Pastor Gilmore come. She's going to come and give her testimony here. Uh, and uh, we'll really give you insight into missions like you've never had it from uh, past days. I hate to say past days, that sounds terrible, but uh, uh, present days. And uh, I know that uh, her testimony will just be uh, really encouraging to you. So Pastor Gilmore, if you'll come, please. Psalm 2, verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And Mrs. Stringer's been with us in class these last couple hours, and her inheritance is some regions of the heathen. And uh, the greatest privilege it is uh, to be part of that. And truly, God sent her to the uttermost parts. Uh, many of you have perhaps read some missionary biographies from what God did in Papua New Guinea uh, or the Irian Jaya, the West Papua side. Um, there was a, uh, one of those heroes was down near her, uh, going to do some help with some language work and they build a little hut uh, for this man to come and help them but when he arrived there was that in Sengo then no. uh, near there and uh, when he arrived uh, he didn't help them at all all he did was stay in his house and write a book peace child so that was Don Richardson um, many of you maybe remember when uh, David Scoville was here. He was right alongside of that site. She's met uh, Darling Dibler Rose um, there. And so some of those heroes, um, and you get to meet one here today. And uh, I have tried to arrange her visit for some time, uh, several years, and it's arrived uh, to this time. Brother uh, Ken Shaver had her speak this, uh, this uh, summer, and he reminded me, you better get her up there and... Uh, so uh, we made this uh, special time here. So it's a privilege to have uh, Mrs. Ms. Stringer come and share how God, what God did uh, in her life and ministry. It's a privilege. So I'm going to give testimony. And for those in the missions class that have heard uh, some of the things I'm going to say now, pretend like you've never heard it. But, uh, I uh, grew up in South Carolina. A real redneck hillbilly, and that's not any exaggeration. Grew up out in the country, milked a cow till I went to college. That's why I went to college <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of the, to get away from that cow. <laughs> I didn't mind milking; it was just so inconvenient, especially when uh, you go out to milk the cow and the cow wasn't there. Then you knew, you knew she had gotten out of the fence and was in the neighbor's cornfield. <laughs> But uh, I was in a church that had never had a missionary before. We had never seen those weird people come to our church. Never seen one in my life. But uh, I was saved when I was 11 years old. And my pastor's wife, my father had died and there were six of us and, and mom didn't go to church very much. And we didn't have bus ministers back then. We had car ministry. So the pastor and his wife would pick me up to go to church because I love to go to church. And uh, she would keep giving me books to read. And these books were missionary stories. So I was reading about Mary Slessor and Amy Carmichael and Hudson Taylor and all those missionaries back in the 1800s. And I had never seen a missionary. But God spoke to my heart from reading those books. 
And when I was 12 years old, I'd go forward in that church who has never seen a missionary and told them that I would be a missionary. And nobody took me serious. I knew that because later they told me so. But nobody, nobody took me serious, and I had no encouragement whatsoever. But God put in my heart a desire to be a missionary. Man, I wanted to be a missionary. I just thought world, this life would not be worth living if I didn't get to be a missionary. And uh, I'm talking about going to Bible school. Well, my mama forbade me to talk about it. So she says, I'll get you through high school, and you're on your own. She had to get some of us kids out of the house. <laughs> and uh, she, she, she meant it. I got out of high school, and she moved me out of the house a week later. And I was 17 years old. But I didn't talk about it anymore, but I didn't forget about it. I would cry myself to sleep begging, God, please, please, just let me be a missionary. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. Please let me be a missionary. And begged and pleaded, God would let me be a missionary. And I got out of high school, and Mom moved me over into the big city of Greenville. And that was like going to a foreign country for a country girl going to the big city. I had to learn how to ride a bus to work and all that stuff, and I was scared to death. But I got a job in the hospital as a medical secretary at 17 years old. I'm surprised I didn't kill somebody. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and I started a school at Furman University, which was a large Southern Baptist college there, and I was corresponding with the foreign mission board. And I was telling Pastor Gilmore this morning, I said, uh, I became an independent Baptist by mistake. I, I, I thought you were either Baptist or Catholic. I thought that, I mean, you were Baptist or Baptist. I didn't know there was all sorts of Baptists. I thought this one kind. And so, have you ever heard of Dr. Harold Sattler? Good, some of you heard of him. Well, he was a well-known pastor around there. And when I was, I had to go visit with my grandmother and I would, every day we'd listen to him on the radio. So when I moved over to Greenville, I thought, Harold Sattler, I know him. I'll go to that church. So I went over to that church and I joined it. And all of a sudden, by mistake, I became an independent Baptist. <laughs> and then I transferred from Furman and went to Tennessee Temple and worked there in a little hospital and graduated. I was, I was so excited. I worked full time and I went to school full time, which was not allowed at Tennessee Temple. But uh, I'd have to get special permission every semester and uh, Dr. Robertson would say she's keeping her grades up, let her do it. <laughs> it didn't work too hard for him. But I graduated, didn't know anybody, anything. All my bills were paid and I graduated. I applied to the mission board and I thought they will never accept me. I mean, I'm this redneck hillbilly. I, I'm the, I, was not, I was not what I thought a missionary was supposed to be. I didn't fit the profile that I had in my mind of what a missionary was supposed to be, except that I wanted to be a missionary and I felt God was calling me. And I applied to the mission board and they accepted me. I got that letter of acceptance and I read it over and over and over and I memorized it. I was so excited they've accepted, they've accepted me. And I got my support in one year. You could do that back then. You can't do it now. But I think the only reason I got mine in such a hurry, these preachers thought she's never going to get it anywhere else. I mean, I was so naive that asked me a question. I don't know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know anything. I just know I'm going. And uh, I knew where I was going. I told that this morning. It was because uh, I was looking at pictures of missionaries' pictures, and they were in this place called Singo in the Chetuk tribe, in this place which was called Dutch New Guinea at that time. And the uh, 
the people were naked and, and it had made these little red drawstring shorts for these little boys and I was looking at those pictures and that's it. No, never another question. That's it. I know where I'm going. That's it. Now, up until then, missionaries would come through at Tennessee Temple and every week I was going to go a different place. I didn't know because I, I was, I'm ready to go. You need somebody. I'll go there next week. I'll go there. But I looked at those little red shorts. I said, that's it. That's where I'm going. And I ended up right there at Singo. The boys in those little red shorts was our first pastor of the Chituck Church. They're the ones that helped me translate the New Testament. All those little boys in the red shorts. Isn't it exciting how God leads us? Well, I was so excited. I was so excited. And I got to the field that I was in. The first house I was in was a king strand. That's a metal house. You can't live in a metal house in the tropics. If you want to know how that feels, get in your oven and turn it up to about 120 <laughs> degrees and you'll know. Well, the missionaries, nobody had lived in that house because they realized you can't live in that house. Well, that's where they put me. <laughs> and they had, uh, they had uh, cut all the grass and stuff around it. And at one time, way back in the dark ages, it had had screens, but the screens had long time gone. And this place was full of rats. You know, when I was at Tennessee Temple Missionaries to talk about rats and snakes and spiders, and I was so excited, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do every bit of it. They talk about all these foods they ate. I'm going to eat every bit of it. I'm going to do all of it. I'm going to experience every bit of it. And so I got this house full of these big jungle rats, not little mice, big jungle rats. And I got this rat trap from one of the missionaries, a, a big rat trap. And I caught seven in one night, didn't even scratch the surface. I was writing letters home, and I said, I got rats as big as elephants over here. I was so excited. <laughs> I'd been there just uh, two or three days, the biggest spider I'd ever seen on the wall over there. Oh, wow, look at that big spider. And so I thought I should swat it. So I got me something to swat it, and it jumped right at me. <laughs> I reacted like most of you girls would have. And then when I got over it, I thought, oh boy, you don't get much missionary to that. <laughs> Not only do I have spiders, I have attack spiders. <laughs> and I was, I was so excited. Because I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary. I'm, a, I'm here. I'm a missionary. My daydream of being a missionary. I'm here. I'm a missionary. I was so excited. You know, before I went to the field, people would say, well, what are you going to do? And that always irritated me. Because you can ask the youngest kids in your church what's a missionary, and they say somebody goes and tells people about Jesus, right? So why are you asking me? <laughs> I know they better you go to be a secretary or a nurse or a translator or what, but it irritated me because I'm going to be a missionary. A missionary goes and tells people about Jesus, and that's what I wanted to do. And I started learning the Indonesian language, and I was going out trying to talk with the people, and I thought, these people are making fun of me. And I, after I learned the language, I found out they really had been making fun of me. <laughs> and so I was so anxious to learn. And then they sent me to, to my place. I was, I was up, on the, up on the coast, in the uh, north coast, in the town. I, that was not what I wanted. I'm headed to the jungle. So I went all the way down the bottom of the, the thing to the jungle. And for 10 years, I was in the Mimika tribe. <clears throat> Very difficult place because they were Catholicism had taught them that you can worship God and you can keep your old ways and we we cannot break through that. But then uh, we reopened Singo. That's where the little red shorts were. There had been no missionary there since the mid 50s. So we went back in in the mid 70s. So I went over, moved over there to be the uh, 
the linguist and to analyze the language that was an unwritten language. And uh, so I got to Singo and I'm starting over again the third language and this was an unwritten language, you know, nobody had ever learned it and had never, the, the missionaries who had the little red shorts, they were only there a few months. She just had a breakdown. It was a very, very difficult spot they were in and, and uh, don't criticize her until you see where she was. They were living in one of those metal houses and it was up off the ground and, and when the rains came, it was flooded under the house and she had several little children and a crocodile swimming around under your house. And so if, unless you see where she was, don't ever criticize her. But they had to come home and they were not able to return. So although it was opened, then it was almost just a few months later, it was closed. So we went back in the mid seventies and reopened. And so I went in there as a linguist and unwritten language. And again, I'm so anxious to, I'm so anxious to learn the language because I was so anxious to tell them about Jesus. And these people liked me. <laughs> they wanted me there. And uh, I thought, oh boy, you know, you're getting your mind. I, I love these people. I'm going to learn their language. They like me. They're responsive. As soon as I learn their language, they're all going to get saved. That didn't happen. I worked hard and I'm studying and studying. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to have a ladies class. Everybody in the village would show up, all the ladies. And all the ladies have several, several undisciplined children. And children don't wear diapers. Also, some of the most faithful people to come in were dogs and chickens and pigs. And it was bedlam. And I learned right quick, don't call somebody down over here. Because if I call somebody down over here, everybody yells at that mother. So I've caused more disrupt disruption by calling somebody down. So just keep quiet and hope they'll settle down in a minute. And I would just give my lesson that oh, they didn't understand a word I said. I'd get down in the dumps and I'd go back and I'd study and study and study. Okay, I'm going to have a class. Everybody show up. I'd do my very best and oh, they didn't understand me. <laughs> I'd go back and I'd keep studying. And I thought, they understand me. Now they under I know they understand. For three years, I did the same thing. How to get saved over and over. Then one of my good friends, Pam Motter, she says, Nona, you tell us that all the time. And I thought, when are you going to do something about it? <laughs> Nothing was happening. Now try to imagine that you're somebody you've never even heard the name of God. And this weird looking person comes in here and tells you this outlandish story. That there's somebody called God lives up there in the sky somewhere that I can't see. And he's the one that created everything. And I tell him, he's the one that sent me here to tell you that he loves you. And they say, oh yeah, well, I can't see him. And I would tell him about this, this person up there in the sky that I can't see. Then I tell him that person up there has this really nice village. Now see, they didn't have medicine before we came. So if they got malaria, they died. Most of their babies would die with dysentery and diarrhea. And uh, they go out in the jungle and cut themselves with their machete. They'd put mud in it to stop the bleeding. <clears throat> then they were fighting. They were killing each other, cannibalism. So I would tell them in that nice village up there that that creator has, that they don't fight each other. Nobody gets sick. You know, and their faces would light up. 
That sounds like a lovely place. They don't cry. Nobody dies. And I'd ask them, how many of you ever did anything bad? They didn't have a word for sin. So how many of you ever done any bad stuff? Every hand would come up. But I would tell them that God's nice village, he wouldn't let any bad stuff come. Because if he lets bad stuff come, it's not going to be a nice village anymore. So the tiniest little bad stuff, he's not going to let go of his village. So then their faces would drop. I said, but I have good news for you. And I would tell them about hell. People's done bad stuff, and I'd tell them where they're going. They're going to hell. Then I'd tell them I have good news for you. That creator up there, he had a son. His name was Jesus. And he came here to earth, and he became a human. He never did anything bad. And they'd say he'd never made any mistakes? No. He did nothing wrong? No. They'd say he still, they still killed him? I'd say, yes. You know, that's not good. <laughs> and then I would tell them about the miracles of Jesus. They loved him. They'd say he walked right on top of the water? Yes. They'd say the blind man was blind like this, and then he could see like this? Yes. And they'd say this stuff... This stuff rose from the dead? Yes, they loved it. But I got to the substitutionary death of Jesus and I lost them. It was like I had a physical barrier right here. For three years, I taught over and over. And that barrier was just like, it was almost like something physical right there that stopped it. And so we began praying and we began sending letters home. <clears throat> That's when I realized I can love the people. I can learn their language. I can teach them. I can't open their hearts. <clears throat> to, real, to understand the foolishness of the gospel. That's when I realized it come across as foolishness, you know? But we began praying, and uh, I wish you could have been there. It seemed just like that. Overnight, the light turned on. And they would come to my house maybe six, eight, ten, sometimes maybe a dozen at a time knocking on my door. They don't knock, they cough coughing at the door. They wanted to come in. They wanted to, be to teach them how they could uh, pray and ask God to save them. And I'd be praying with them. I'd pray with them. Another group would come. We were on the edge of a language barrier across the airstrip. They started coming. It spread out to these about 20-something outlying villages. They started responding. And it was just an exciting scene to see them coming by the dozens and coming in and wanting to know uh, can we confess our sins and we want to ask God to save us. What an exciting, exciting thing that was to, to see them doing that. And then we thought we better have, we're now it's time for some baptismal service. And of course, you know, the, 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 some of the first converts that were helping me learn the language, they were our first converts. So I taught them how to lead people to the Lord. And I said, well, you take that group and I'll take this group and you take that group. And we were dividing them up. And so we formed a group out of the villagers to examine the candidates for baptism because they know their people better than I did. And so they were going to examine the candidates. And Pam Mater, my good friend, she went through three classes before they accepted her. They told her that her mouth was too big. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to go through that group. I never would have gotten baptized. <laughs> they finally approved her for baptism. And, I, and Pam Mater got baptized. Pim Mother was such a sweetheart. She was, everybody would say, they'd come to my house and say, your friend is sick. I knew it was Pim Mother because we'd become such good friends. She was the wife of the most powerful witch doctor at Singo. And uh, so exciting. I, there's a lot of stories I can tell about that, but eventually Twitter Beast did get saved. 
First of all, his, his Pemar got saved, then his son Bernard got saved, and then uh, Turbis then got saved, and Bernard is now the pastor of the Chitak Church at Singo, and this is so exciting, so many good stories about how God worked. And then we uh, decided we were going to have our first communion service. We didn't have any scripture translated at the time, and I thought I had taught them really well, I thought. So, you know, missionaries without a camera, you're not a missionary at all if you don't have a camera all the time. So we missionaries got our cameras together and we go to the church and the church was empty. The village was empty. The pastor was gone. Nobody in the village. Well, wonder what happened. Found out that they had gotten a hold of that little part said eating or drinking unworthily. And they all thought that if they partook of communion, they were all going to die. So the pastor led the whole village out to hide in the jungle. <laughs> so we thought, well, I guess we've got to do some more teaching. <laughs> so we did some more teaching, and then uh, we came back and had communion service. And, you know, until the time I came home, it was interesting. We'd have communion service, and almost every time you'd say somebody, that he didn't feel that he was right in his heart. And so he had denied the communion. But then we had communion. And you guys are going to like this part. Our first Christian wedding. <laughs> Obden, I called him Peter because he was so much like Peter. He knew, he knew what to do about everything. And he had something to say about everything. So he came to me and he said, we're going to have a wedding in the church. Good. I said, you need some help with it? No. <laughs> okay. Let's see what happens. So he got up there and he had a bench about this wide sitting up there. The men sat on one side and the women on the other side. So I had to go get the groom. <laughs> he came up and he sat like this on the end of that bench. I went over here and got Tabita. She sat on that inch like this. So they both had their backs to each other, this much space between them because they were sitting back to back looking the other direction because they were so shy. And Aubin got up to preach, and I wish I had recorded it. It was absolutely amazing. He said, God made man first, and then he made the woman. That means the man's the boss. <laughs> uh, his whole sermon was this. I've got it abbreviated. He says, like this, there's God, there's the man, there's the woman. <laughs> You know what I thought? Cut that thumb off, Buster, and see how you like it. <laughs> so it's a man's, man's job is to boss his wife, and her job is to do what he says. So we had him stand up in front of him. He says, Tortica, you promised to boss Tabita? He says, yeah. <laughs> he says, Tabita? She's standing, she's all shy like this. You promised to do what he says? If he tells you to chop firewood, you're going to do it. If he tells you to cook sago, you're going to do it. Whatever he tells you to do, are you going to do it? She says, <laughs> she didn't get any sound out, but she mouthed it. He said, I, I pronounce you man and wife. Well, the last time I was over there was about three years ago, and they have a house full of kids. So I guess they're in the process of living happily ever after. So I guess it worked. <laughs> It was, it was so, so fun to watch them grow and watch them mature and watching preachers learn to preach. Well, see, I don't preach. <laughs> so I was teaching the men. 
And then the, the men would do, uh, do the preaching. We've never had a missionary preach in the Chetak language. It's an amazing thing. We have about 23 churches and never had a missionary preach. They've all been, they've, they've done it from the very beginning. But in the beginning, I heard some very interesting sermons. Because <laughs> they would forget and I would say, <laughs> 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 When I first started to preach, I know one guy, he would go over against that wall and he'd lean up against the wall talking that, no, you got to talk to the people out there. <laughs> you know? so stand up here and talk to them, but he'd talk to the other wall. And then we're going to use pictures. And uh, I thought I'd tell them how to use pictures, but they'd get up and they'd hold the picture like they're looking at it. <laughs> uh, no, you got to turn the picture around so they could see it <laughs> and do it like that. And all these things was fun teaching them how to do some of those things, just the practical things and getting up to, to talk to them. And then you have to remember, you've got to remember that you told them everything. You leave something out, they'll make it up. And uh, when I first went, Titus would get up to preach, and, and they called me Nona. It just simply means miss. But he'd say, the Nona said, everything he, everything he was teaching, he was prefacing it by saying, the Nona said. And I thought, we can't, we can't have this. So I called him in, and I said, now, this is God's word. And it's in my language. And I'm teaching you what God said in this book. And this is the same thing in the Indonesian language. And we're going to translate it into your language. So when you teach the people, don't say the Nona said, you say God said, because I'm telling you what God said. Because we can't have the, you know, the gospel according to Nona. We had to have what God said. Well, Titus got up on Sunday morning and he says, you think this stuff I'm telling you is what the Nona said? No, she's got a book. And that book is God's words. Uh, so she's teaching us what God said. So what I'm teaching you is what God said. And God left that book in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. <laughs> Oops, I guess I forgot something. <laughs> but what a joy to, to watch them grow and watch them mature in their, in their Christian life and in their walk. And I remember we, uh, Chris, just loved Chris to death. Uh, he's, uh, he and Bernard are co-pastors of the church. And, you know, I remember when Chris was just a little boy in, in kids' class. He'd come in, he wouldn't say a word, very quiet. He memorized his verses, very quiet. And uh, Titus got too old to, to continue pastoring, and Chris became the pastor. And we were trying to teach the people to support their pastor. And I remember talking with Chris one day, and I said, Chris, you know, I said, I could, I could get support for you. I could give you a salary. But as if I did, that when I leave, what are you going to do? And we've got to teach the people. And I said, I know you're blazing the trail. You don't, you don't have any salary. And I would help him you know, under the table where the people didn't know I was doing it because we wanted them to learn to do it. And I never will forget what Chris said. He says, no, it doesn't matter. He says, if I never get a salary, I'm just going to serve Jesus till I die. What, what a guy. He had a little boy named Eunice. Eunice comes in and he says, I'm not going to go to school unless you get me a backpack and a pair of shoes. Well, nobody in the school had a backpack and a pair of shoes. He said, I'm not going to school unless I have them. So I said, okay, Eunice, you go and you could, you could only go six grades, then you had to go, out of the, go somewhere else to finish, go into more schooling. I said, you graduate sixth grade and I'll get you a backpack and a pair of shoes. Well, I retired. 
I came home. And I got a message from Gail, one of the other missionaries, said, did you promise Eunice a pack, pack and a pair of shoes? Yeah, he remembered that for six years, didn't he? <laughs> As you get him the best pair of shoes, you can find the nicest backpack. These are tennis shoes that he wants, and a nice backpack. He goes, ah, yes, I did promise him. Well, Eunice is now the youth leader at the church at Singo. I, I feel sorry for missionaries who go and stay a few years and come home. You miss out on so much of watching them grow and mature and watching their kids grow up and watch them and see how God leads in the families and what a joy and what a thrill. And you know, God gave me such a love for these people. I just really loved them and I got ready to come home and uh, I'd been there for a little over 40 years. And 40 years in three months, and I tell people those three months are very important because then I can say I was there for more than 40 years. <laughs> but I got ready to come home and I knew it was time. There was no question. I knew it was time for me to come home. And uh, started to get on that airplane that morning. You know, I had to get rid of everything I had. I had to reduce 40 years worth of stuff down to two suitcases. The hardest thing was getting rid of my books and I had to get rid of it. Most everything wasn't worth bringing home, but uh, I, I hated to get rid of my books. But uh, the people were coming to the door and the difference, we had an Indonesian language church as well as a Chitak language church and then the Tom Nim language church. So we had three churches right there and they all wanted to do something special. And then the entire community there, which included the Catholics and the Muslims and all the government and everybody did this big reception. So it was an awful, awful busy time. And I uh, cleaned out my house and moved into another little building up there so we could get my house all closed down. And I got malaria. Every time I, I say every time I cleaned the house, I got malaria. So I thought I would never clean the house anymore. But I got malaria, and the Indonesian group, the proper way to tell you goodbye is to stand out in front of your window and play their guitars and sing all night. <laughs> so obviously we didn't sleep much because we were having the, out there playing the guitars and singing at the bedroom window all night. So the next morning the airplane came and it was just a short distance to the house down to the airstrip. You know, we were in the jungle. We didn't have roads or anything. I had to go out in my plane. And uh, it took at least 45 minutes to get to my house, to the airplane, because I did not expect this at all. I'd seen them mourn, they'd mourned when somebody died. I'd never seen them do it for somebody who was alive. And they mourned and mourned and they cried and they hugged and they hugged. And I would start to get on the airplane, they'd pull me back off. And I kept crying and hugging and, and I had malaria and I was feeling pretty rotten to begin with. And finally, the pilot just had to get through between us and shove me on and shove them away. He said, we'll never get out of here if we don't do that. And such so the outpouring of love that they showed to me that day when I left. And I looked back down there at those people when we got on that plane. I never expected that I would go back because that's halfway around the world. And I looked down at those people and I thought, everybody I know died at one time. And I wasn't going home. I was leaving home. And just a day or two before I left, we had a, a, a death, and they, they 
born for them all day and buried them the same day. So it was an all-day thing with the people. And we were out in the jungle, and they had put the, had put the body down in the ground, and they were covering it up. And I went over and sat down on a log, and I had on a pair of flip-flops, a pair of culottes, T-shirt sort of thing. It was very dirty because they roll in the mud. And so I was very dirty. I was hot. I was sweating. Mosquitoes were flying around. Bugs were crawling up my leg. And I was anticipating coming back here. And all that was happening, I was sitting there thinking, I'm comfortable. Not physically, but I was comfortable because I, I know what to do. I know, I, I know where I am, and I was anticipating coming home and knowing I had an awful adjustment to get, to adjust back into American culture. And, but I was thinking, I'm home. And I knew that I was leaving home. And this, this was not home for a long time after I came home. But I'm ever, ever so grateful. I expect to spend eternity just thanking God for that privilege. And young people, when God puts his hand on your life and gives you an opportunity or calls you to serve him, you're serving the King of Kings. And I want you to know, it, it was, there were some rough times, there were some tough times. I remember one time I was so discouraged, I thought, I can't stay here another minute. I knew that if I left, I'd be out of God's will. Now, you're in bad shape, and you can't go, and you can't stay. And I, I, was, in that, I was in that kind of a shape. I was so discouraged. And uh, so there are times of discouragement. And it's not all a bed of roses. And it can get tough. But you know, I'd do it again in a minute. I would gladly do it again in a minute. I wish I could turn the calendar back to your age and start over again and hope I would do a better job. Serving the Lord is the greatest privilege and I spend, I'm going to spend eternity just thanking Him thanking him for giving me that privilege of serving him. And I appreciate you letting me tell you about it. Thank you. What are you asking God for? 12 years of age, Ms. Stringer began to say, God, I beg you, Make me a missionary. Give me the heathen. I'd like to just ask the ladies in this room, what are you asking God for? Some may have come here. The thing on your heart is, God, give me a husband. Why don't you change that? God, give me the heathen. That should be the prayer. Why are you here? Just to find a husband? That's not why you're here. I was speaking with a, a missionary sender recently, and uh, he's helping missionaries get places, and the single ones are going, and he's actually placing more single women than single men. Men, why are you here? Sometimes there's more women responding to the need of the world than the men. The only 
white Cheetuk speaker in the world you heard from today. It's a woman, a lady who obeyed. And God used her, gave amazing wisdom, raising up those men in the churches. And God used her. Sometimes we need to ask, where are the men as well? What are you here for? What are you praying for? God, give me the heathen. Not God, give me a husband. We need to surrender our lives to the Lord in a new and a fresh way. God can use you in a remarkable way and you get the glimpse of the glory that's waiting. Miss Stringer on the other side. Wow. That's it. Amen.